This is Criterion Cast. Tonight, we are here together to discuss Jack Clayton's 1961 film, The Innocents. This is Trevor Barrett. I'm going to direct tonight's conversation, but I am joined by David Blakesley. Hello, David. Hey, Trevor. And Scott Nye. Hey, Scott. Howdy. I'm thrilled to have you two on. I, I love these conversations that we have, and tonight we get to pick about a film I chose to talk about for this Halloween season. It happens to be one of my favorite films um, in the collection, one that I was very excited about when they announced it, because I've always hoped it might show up. Never had any indication that it was going to. I don't remember any hints or anything like that. So when they announced it, I was just, uh, oh, excellent. <laughs> but it's one that I've lived with for, for several years and have really enjoyed it. I'm curious, uh, before we start talking about any substance of, of with it, as to whether this was your first time or whether you've seen it before. Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, I saw it, I can't remember how many years ago with a group of friends. And so this was my second time. All right. How about you, David? Uh, I had never seen it before this Criterion release, but I, I did watch it shortly after it came out, which was, was it last year sometime or was it even longer? Ooh, it was longer ago than that. I think it was, it oh, might have been 2014. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Time um, goes I by fast. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, it does. The, the new releases just keep on pouring in. But yeah, I, I was pretty eager to get into it. It looked pretty fun and uh and intriguing and and something that my wife and I could probably watch and enjoy together a little bit of that sort of Victorian gothic and uh you know Deborah Carr's just real classy and she she always turns in a good performance but yeah I, I was pretty pretty surprised and, and pretty delighted with it but really it wasn't until I kind of really absorbed myself getting ready for this podcast that I really got to see the 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 real genius and beauty of this film well, good. I'm excited to talk about it then with each of you. I will uh, begin tonight by reading the back of the Criterion release, as we do. It says, The Innocence, this genuinely frightening, exquisitely made supernatural gothic stars Deborah Carr as an emotionally fragile governess who comes to suspect that there is something very, very wrong with her precocious new charges. A psychosexually intensified adaptation of Henry James' classic The Turn of the Screw, co-written by Truman Capote and directed by Jack Clayton, The Innocence is a triumph of narrative economy and technical expressiveness, from its chilling sound design to the Stygian, Stygian? Stygian? depths of its widescreen cinematography by Freddie Francis. You know, I've read that back many times, and I have always skipped over the word Stygian or Stygian. What does that mean? Does anyone know? <laughs> it's like sticks, you know, the river sticks. Oh, kind okay. Of hellish and dark and underworldly. Yeah. Gotcha. I appreciate that. It's weird how when you don't know a word, sometimes you just don't even acknowledge that it exists on the page. But I kind was of repressed. Are you for, for is forced to go through? With it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've got. I've got some issues. I'm about to to unleash them all tonight. Uh, <laughs> So, David, I, I, I'm glad you were... Did you watch this with Julie then, with your wife? Yeah, we watched it, you know, like I say, when it was a fairly new release, and she sort of had it on in the background. I think she gets a little creeped out easily, and the children kind of disturbed her, so she wasn't, like, really eager to plunge into the rewatch, but it was on, and I've watched uh, you know, watched the commentary get into the supplements and all that over the past several days. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I think she found it intriguing and, and interesting, but not a world she wanted to perhaps a little uncomfortable revisit <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I'm ready to just plunge right back in, you know, the deeper, the better. Yeah, me too. Um, I, so I read the turn of the screw several years ago and a lot of people said, Oh, well then you have to watch the innocence. And I was talking to my wife, Sherry, and I said, Hey, you know, let's watch this old scary movie. And she is not a fan of scary movies at all. And it was a little bit resistant. And I, I, it was a, a little bit, uh, dishonest with her and was like, hey, it was made in 1961. How scary can it be? It's literary, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's based on a Henry James, you know, that's uh, this old story. I mean, really, how how terrifying can it be? And, you know, I never told her that most of the scariest movies I think I've seen were from around that same time period or whatever, but, uh, <laughs> and that The Turn of the Screw is one of the scariest stories I've ever read. So, I, but I got her to watch it. She was incredibly disturbed, I think very upset with me for, for a long time. But since then, she's watched it again. And I think she, I think she enjoys it. I think she just had to get over that, the kids too. So, 
anyway, Scott, uh, any any initial impressions? Anything you'd like to to lay out on the table before we 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 dive in? Um, I don't know. I feel bad being the one to kind of come out with the gate with an opinion because I'm not as enamored of the film as I think uh, you guys are, or I'm sure most of our listeners are. So I feel bad having that the first opinion kind of out there. I mean, I find it well-mounted and effective in parts, but it's not its not a, a major film for me for reasons that I'm sure we'll be able to get into. As always, th- that can make it a, a nice conversation as as I try to convince you that you're just wrong. <laughs> right, <laughs> and so. as you resist and explain to me, you know, hey, uh, to each his own, Trevor, to <laughs> each his own. <laughs> Anything else from you, David, before we dive in and maybe give a bit of a of an explanation as to where it comes from and the general story. No, I think I've I've kind of given my opening volley there. We'll uh, start to pick apart the details now. All right. Well, we've mentioned that this is this is based on a Henry James story. Have either of you had had the opportunity to read The Turn of the Screw? Uh, unfortunately, no. Is it is it a short story? Is it a novella? I mean, uh, what's, what's yeah, it? more of a novella. It's not particularly okay. long, but it's not a short story that you might think of that you get to sit down and I'd say it's 50 to 75 pages, maybe even a little longer, but not not a big gigantic novel or anything like that. So something that's going to be in an anthology of sorts, not a paperback you pick up by itself. Oh, but they are available. Yeah, you can okay, you can. Sure. But I but but to be fair, all of the editions I have of it are included with other Henry James ghost stories or or just other Henry James um, stories as well. So most of them do tend to link it up with a few of his other ones. It's definitely one of my favorites. And Henry James is pretty well known for his big novels of, of manners. And I, I do love them. But this is probably my favorite because it's, it's a, just a chilling ghost story. And it's one that I find incredibly sophisticated because of all the layers that are going on in it and all of the ambiguity. So when I finished reading it, I didn't understand how could they ever make this into an effective movie? You know, how do they maintain that intelligence without spelling it all out and and making me get the objective camera's eyes view of what's going on here? And I was really surprised when I watched The Innocents to find that they succeeded in keeping a lot of those narrative layers intact in ways that I I don't think jump to the surface. And it doesn't jump to the surface in the story either. It's things that when you kind of dig down a little bit that start to to fall apart when you look at the the governess of Miss Giddens, as she's called in in the movie, and her role taking charge of these two children. They're orphans and their uncle is a wealthy London businessman. He wants nothing to do with them. And so he hires this governess to go and take care of them. And as she does so, she starts to suspect really awful things about their past based on some of the old staff who used to live at the house called Bly. And she starts to see things and suspect that maybe these ghosts aren't done with these children. And maybe these children are actually part of part of something very sinister. And that's kind of how the movie plays out as she looks around and tries to understand what's going on and how all of this plays together. That's complete with great atmosphere, I think, really nice photography, really nice sound, and then just these chilling children. That's kind of my take on, on just a, a general plot summary. Is there is there anything that, that I failed to mention that you think would be essential for someone coming to this and just trying to refresh their memory? Well, I guess there's this kind of that that whole sort of subgenre within the horror of weird children, and and I think that's the part that just mm-hmm. does intrigue me because yeah, the, the atmosphere is is great, very well realized, uh, but it is this kind of peculiarity of these you know these disturbed oddball children, the innocence, the innocence, yeah, the innocence, <laughs> right, right, um, that that seem to have. You know, well, they're, they are orphans, uh, but they're living in incredible comfort and privilege, and yet there's just something that's just not quite right. And of course, you know that that idea or that theme has been you know woven into so many scary movies. And I guess maybe I'll start by saying I'm not a guy who really goes out looking for horror movies. I mean, and that's maybe a little bit. Uh, 
of a scandal at this time of year in particular. <laughs> I look at the social media feeds and everybody's just pulling out all the spooky, creepy, scary, or, you know, horrific stuff. Uh, uh, and that's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't mind it. I just, I, I guess I kind of let horror films find me rather than me go out and actively seek them out. Uh, but when I, when I do, because they are kind of a change of pace compared to most of my usual movie watching, I, I do enjoy, you know, sort of the, the, the fresh, uh, perspective because i don't really immerse myself in these types of movies but i I like this one because of its relative subtlety and classiness and and uh you know like i say that the compositions and the and the visual beauty uh of the of, of the camera work and and again just how these you know little oddball children kind of pull pull me in and make me feel kind of this intrigue about how do they get this way? Yeah, definitely. And I, I want to return to the oddball children. In fact, it's probably worth noting that Martin Stevens, who plays Miles in this movie, he was pretty fresh off of his role in the 1960s version of The Village of the Damned. Playing an oddball child is is something that this kid was really good at for a few years. <laughs> yeah, his filmography definitely has some pretty uh, lurid sounding titles in it, you know. So, and I think in The Village of the Damned, he had his hair bleached blonde, and mm-hmm. and they all all the kids are kind of these little, you know, cute cherub-faced zombies or something like that so yeah and 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 while we're on it i i I, let's note that flora who's the the younger sister of miles is played by pamela franklin in her in her debut she was a a pretty interesting british actress who popped up a few times in literary adaptations thinking in particular of the prime of miss jean brody but yeah, those are the two children, and the governess, Miss Giddens, as the blurb mentioned, is played by Deborah Carr. So, Scott, are you willing to uh, to share some things that you, you like about the film before we delve into some of the things that didn't work for you? Oh, for or sure. would you and like to do it the other way? No, no, this, this way is perfect, because I think uh, saying the things I didn't like about it is it's less that than it is, I just don't feel it, it goes maybe far enough to a degree that I, I think it makes it as masterful as I hear it described. You know, it just, it works for me in the same way that I think it works for a lot of people, just not as much, which is difficult to kind of parse out. So it's just as well we start with the good stuff, um, which is a, uh, one of the things that do that, that does appeal to me about horror movies, as limited as my exposure to them generally is, and with ghost stories in particular, is the notion of a place retaining a sensation or a spirit or something of its past beyond uh, any natural phenomenons that befall it. And the idea that a person who com- another person who comes into that can somehow draw out uh, its past and the things that have inhabited it, the things that have happened there and the people who have gone through it. Um, I, I like that idea and it's a great thematic emotional sensation that I think a lot of people get entering any space, you know, whether you believe in ghosts or not, I am not particularly inclined to, but I think anytime you enter especially an old place, but even a new place, you get a, a feeling of some experience that's passed through there. Um, and Ghost Story is a really interesting way to kind of draw that out. And I like the way that this film does. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic location to begin with, this old house that's alternately incredibly ornate and then in some sections, you know, old and musty and full of cobwebs in the midst of this property that's utterly gorgeous with its lily pad ponds and kind of almost foggy atmosphere and the pigeons flying around the butterflies and it's just a it's a wonderful space that you could kind of imagine any number of things happening and the more you kind of discover what has happened there you know you can whether or not it's as uh sinful as deborah carr seems to think it is or as lurid or as uh revolting uh is kind of immaterial just the notion that it's not the pristine image that she came in with and that there are real lives that have happened here and people have gone through some terrible things and have gone through some happy times too. And it's, uh, I think it's somewhat about that kind of notion of discovering the world is not as you thought it'd be. And, you know, for a woman of uh, Deborah Kerr's character's age at that time to make the discovery so late, it's tragic in some ways too, which is, I guess, is the sort of Victorian criticism embedded in the story itself. Uh, but at the same time, it's a very effective one. I think it's one that anybody has to go through at any time. So that's the thing that does appeal to me about the film. And like I said, horror in general is when it can kind of tap into 
some real emotional space that's more than just the scares, which I think are largely pretty effective in the film. Mm-hmm. David, any any follow up on that? Yeah, well, yeah, to me, it is it is, you know, kind of tapping into those deeper themes, uh, you know, as as I think is, is fairly well known, once you start reading the literature on this, Deborah Carr is about roughly twice the age of the character in the story who's in the story. She's like, what, a 20 year old governess. So, you know, especially at that time, still a relatively inexperienced young woman who needs to find a way to make a respectable living and and here with Deborah Carr being more like 40 years old or so uh, she's still you know very pretty and, and very proper and, and and classy and all of that but you do get the sense of a woman who's definitely been repressed and for some reason just hasn't quite settled into you know what life could be. I mean, why is she still alone? Why is she single? Why is she, you know, even ready to accept this rather bizarre offer? I mean, he's a, the, the father, or the uncle, I guess he is. He's a, he's not just a wealthy businessman. He's, he's kind of an indulgent playboy. You know, he's, he's very candid in saying he doesn't really want to have children weighing down his style. He likes the the distractions and the revelry of his life in London and his international travels. And so you get the sense he's a, probably a womanizer, perhaps he's a drunkard or, or a carouser, probably, you know, not, not a, a, you know, a straight up boozer, but he, he likes the high life. And, and so he wants to be able to have his fun and, and leave the children behind. But, you know, he basically puts upon this woman, this governess, and this enormous pressure that whatever happens, you have to deal with it. I will supply the money, but that's all you're going to get from me. And, you know, she doesn't really know what kind of lavish, ornate uh, setting she's about to get into. She knows that he's wealthy, but she says, I had no idea when she first walks into this yeah, this palace, basically. Well, David, uh, but there is. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I kind of, if you don't mind, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. Um, That's fine. But I'd kind of like to talk a little bit more about the the meeting at the beginning with the sure, the uncle, sure. because I think that this this is where I start to really admire the story. Once you start to parse it away from the surface ghost story, which there's nothing that says it isn't all true and that that's not just something that Miss Giddens is seeing. But the the doubts start to slip in right from the opening scene with Michael Redgrave playing this rich uncle. And one of the things I love about the novella is that it manages to examine character and language and how we misinterpret or have a whole range of interpretations that we can take to explain something that could be very innocent or very lurid. And I think it begins with the Michael Redgrave uncle at the at the at the very start of the the story here because she's in there. She's an older woman. You're right. She's twice the age of the woman in the story. But let's take it for Deborah Carr here. But she doesn't have very much experience out in the world. This is going to be her first job after she leaves the parsonage she grew up in, and she obviously has never really had any kind of love affair in the past, and. I think it becomes a little bit of a game for the uncle to lead her on just a little bit to tantalize her because you're right. Why else would would why would she want this job? But why would he be giving it to someone who's so obviously inexperienced this this great responsibility? And and part of it is because he simply does not care about the children. Right. There's like there's all this low level seduction that's going on all throughout the film. And is he doing it playfully or is he doing it because that's the kind of person he is? Obviously, I mean, he's that kind of person. But I like how even as you were you were describing him, you kind of played with that range. Is he some is, is he some lecher out there? Is he just some uh, libertine playboy who goes out and and has women all the time? Because the way he says it, there is no place for children in my work or in my life. It's almost like, uh, what do you do? You know, what kind of playboy lifestyle do you have here when there's no room? Is it just business or do you have some major like sexcapades out out there? Right. I I feel it's like, yeah, and I don't even, well, I don't even think he has the idea. He says this is not suitable for children, but I don't think it's even like he's worried about corrupting the children. He just doesn't want the distraction of them around. Like, they're just going to cramp his style, you know. But when you're Miss Giddens, I think that she, she picks up on the potential sexuality that's going on there. This is not suitable for children. 
and that's what gets her in. Yes. And and also probably thinking, well, he's a man in a man's world. And so, of course, somebody needs to tend to the children. And she loves the children. She's here to save the children, you know. And and so this woman who's really right on the cusp of becoming kind of a, an old spinster, uh, you know, to use the old language there, is, is really, uh, this is her chance to kind of get some of that maternal instinct, you know, uh, her her maternal needs met by by investing herself in these two children that she, she knows nothing about except that there's a, a boy and a girl, uh, but but it's also this there's kind of a desperation in her in her um, making her case about how how precious the children are to her and how she just that's her whole reason for being and yet she doesn't seem to have actually had much experience with children herself. Yeah, so, she yeah. she's kind of adopting a new role here that she's been longing for. And I think that that, or that society sort of expects of her. She's kind of yeah, maybe yeah. even establishing her propriety as a, as a, a woman. She's doing what uh, a feminine woman of her age and class is supposed to do. Uh, maybe maybe comp- overcompensating, I guess, is kind of the idea I'm getting at here. Yeah. Um, so a- anyway, like I say, I interrupted you when you were kind of moving on to her arriving at the house and finding this new situation. Um, happy for you to pick up if you'd like to. Oh, well, yeah, just it's basically the opulence and this, you know, she's kind of landed in this this wonderland of 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 beauty and 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 the children are are these just these little angels especially you know when she first meets flora and it's just this little you know garden of delights and 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 of course there is that kind of you know creeping (laughs) sinister something that that lurks below the surface and and so you know she comes in and she looks at the the beautiful flowers in the vase and she touches the roses and the petals fall off and so you can see that things are already falling apart and and then uh you know uh mrs gross the 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 maid uh who's kind of you know the fourth part of this little you know quadrangle of of relationships here i you definitely get the sense that she's sitting on information or leaking out little bits and pieces of it here and there uh, either intentionally or or just things kind of slide out and and so there's sort of a little detective thing going on here what what's the key to this mystery uh, but yeah and and again I my, I guess my attention just gravitates back to these children but maybe we'll just talk about uh, uh, Miss Giddens first because you know she's she's the framework of this whole movie that the movie begins quite quite memorably memorably especially after the first time you go through it and you sort of see the framing bookends of the black screen the clasped hands the sort of supplicant prayer the 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 the, the really kind of grieving emotion with somewhat sexual undertones of this kind of moaning and weeping and and there's even some allusions to moaning and groaning in the middle of the night so yeah there there is this kind of repressed sexuality that's it's not really overt in your face uh certainly not not compared to maybe how this this material might be handled today um but but it's definitely there's something kind of throbbing that's coming through here and I, i i just find that that tension to be you know you know, somewhat suggestive, but also just quite fascinating as you think about these characters having to wrestle all these strong feelings in an environment that doesn't necessarily allow or facilitate that kind of honesty, even with oneself. Well, and also there's a way to read the film where it's her uh, frosty and holding on to uh, that repressed nature and what she thinks of the world that's causing all of this, you know, I mean, the film, I think, as they point out in the commentary accurately, and I'm sure the uh, story as well, is as much a story about a woman going crazy as it is a ghost story. You know, there's a line the film definitely toes where it could be really either way. No one else is really acknowledging the presence of ghosts, um, and the ghosts don't affect the world in such a way that you can say that they're definitely there. You know, she could just be seeing things, and she could just be driving the children to madness along with her. Right, yeah, she's projecting all this sexual hang-ups and all this guilt and all this torment onto these poor children who've already been orphaned, and now here's this crazy governess who's 
dropping all her baggage on them. And who have been through something terrible as well. I mean, whether or not the two ghosts, so maybe to make that more explicit for listeners. So there's a, she, she first thinks she sees a man up on the top of the house, you know, kind of in the ramparts or wherever, if I'm talking about an old house the right way, um, wandering around up there. And she starts to kind of question, hey, was there a man who lived here? And it's like, oh, and this is where where Mrs. Gross starts to show her desire to to share some of the gossip. You know, there's a man named Peter Quint who was just an awful person, you know, just a terrible man. And he was in love with their former governess, Miss Jessel. They have they have since died, and it's Miss Jessel that Mrs. Miss Giddens is there to replace. So this is something the children really have had to go through fairly recently. This potential death and murder, and 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 what's going on with all of that, and also whatever whatever slight things that were going on between Quint and Miss Jessel that the children were able to pick up on, just because they're kids and they can recognize some of these things. I mean, did they notice this love affair? Did they notice some of the darker implications of this love affair? You know, we don't know, but but maybe. But Miss Giddens starts to think that the ghosts are coming back for the children, as if they're unsatisfied, and the children maybe even are part of this this plot. And so these innocent kids whose laughter at the very first seems pleasant, all of a sudden the laughter turns sinister. They're laughing up on the top of the stairway and she's terrified, but she's not terrified because they've changed. She's terrified because she has now wrapped them around in a narrative she's forming in her head. She's the one who's come up with this idea. And now when the kids are in front of her laughing and telling secrets on the way to church... We can't see that anymore from the same innocent eyes as we used to of them just being kids, you know, and laughing. She now sees them as sharing who knows what, maybe devilish stuff. How far into the darkness have these kids wandered? I love that it can go all the way from these kids have no idea what's going on, never have. They're just in this bad situation and they're very happy for a new governess to... Yeah, they're bringing the ghosts. They would like these ghosts to come back. They loved these two, and these two may have loved them. And there's all kinds of awful implications about that, too, and the psychosexual uh, realm there that the film doesn't make explicit, but certainly presents as a possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jack Clayton and Truman Capote and the other, you know, talents who are putting this together really seem to enjoy playing with that ambiguity. In fact, I think there's a pretty crucial... Uh, change from the story uh to the film where uh miss uh miss giddens finds a locket that has the picture of peter quint and um i think is it in the book um she she sees the ghost first and then she sees the locket later but it's kind of twists around this uh, oh I'm, I'm, I'm messing up my point but but she i think she sees the locket first she sees the the picture in this locket when she's playing hide and seek up in the attic and then several minutes later is when peter quince face comes at her through the window in a very chilling shot i, I love uh, the way that the two little dots of light kind of stay on his eyes as he's coming to the you know coming toward the lens and then receding away and just uh, soon his his whole face goes to black except for two tiny little dots so and I don't think you get that same effect if you don't watch it on a nice big <laughs> screen or nice clear monitor that's where the blu-ray really really comes through because I, I saw it much more you know clearly when I was watching it on my bigger TV downstairs when I watched it on my smaller unit upstairs. So uh, just a very nice artistic touch there, the way that kind of macabre, uh, icy stare comes through. But but because you know she saw his picture first, this relic it does plant the idea that she's kind of imagining things or that her her kind of squeamishness is getting the better of her and she's you know projecting things into the shadows or into the sounds of screeching birds and wind blowing through the trees that might be more than what's actually there uh, isn't it awesome that all of that stuff is from her perspective as someone absolutely naive and and innocent of this stuff that she fills the adult in the room who should be able to explain these things and just deal with them because they are. They are what they are, and she's going to deal with them. But I love how much that represents about her potential repression 
as she's reading into all of this and and hearing those sounds in the night, just this very inexperienced woman is now put in charge of the situation. She has no idea what she's doing. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's awesome. Well, yeah, and as the children kind of, as their character and their intelligence comes more to the forefront, you realize that they are the two little masters of the house, in particular Miles. Oh my God, what, a, what, an, what an amazing, uh, disturbing little character and actor this kid was. I mean, that's that he's the one. I mean, Deborah Carr's performance is, is, is very effective, and she is, you know, completely the star of this movie, but Miles is kind of its dark churning heart <laughs> yeah that's very well, fair. especially when you get to the part where he's reciting that poem which i mean you figure the kids are pretty well brought up but that's where the film starts to really tear on the line of you know uh miss Kidden may have a point here yeah yeah i mean i i think when when he becomes basically the um swaggering uh cynical um pseudo adult lover the seducer yeah uh towards the end there it's just like oh my gosh it's it's it, it really becomes this kind of strange pedophilic type of weirdness and yeah that's where i guess maybe we bring our own lurid imaginations and exactly into this experience of watching the film just like the characters do <laughs> And again, we don't even know what Miles is doing. So Miles, the reason he's even a, a presence in the film is because he's been expelled from school. For doing utter, unutterable, horrible things that she reads in a letter. She never even really quotes exactly what's in the letter, but it's just appalling. I was under the impression that the letter itself was fairly vague and general in its language. Like the I, unutterable, I was under that same impression. Things. I think she says at one point that uh, he like unsettled the other children. Maybe he was telling them stories about what he'd seen at the house, or maybe the spirits had begun to possess him or something. But yeah, it seemed like the letter was very vague as well. Yeah, or or maybe he's just a kid and was telling them jokes, or maybe, right. and, and this is something that I think comes out maybe more in the story. I don't know if I see evidence for this in the film, but maybe he's a homosexual, that's certainly a possibility that that's what was unsettling them. He may have been a very innocent child who, the way he looked at people or whatever, was unsettling, and so they sent him home. It really could be something fairly innocent that did this, but now Miss Giddens is going to use any of that to invent a new persona for Miles. Now, obviously, he does, with his actions at the, toward the end of the film, suggest that he's he's not this unknowing kid, but maybe he did get all of this because of all this crap that's going on around him, both with his former governess and her lover, and now with Miss Giddens, who has shown herself to be mistrusting and unstable as well, and he's like, well, I, I can take advantage of this. Well, he's he's definitely a sexually precocious child i mean um and i think if you just want to take what happens in the film at face value when he kind of leans in and, and kisses her on the lips and kind of embraces her but even even his body language even the little side eye glances the little kind of winks and leerings and and his forwardness when she's you know walking outside of his bedroom and he kind of invites her in i mean uh and i think there's also a line somewhere within the earlier parts of the film where it's kind of intimated that the children may have seen uh quint and and miss uh jessel in some kind of compromised situations. It seemed like there was a, a line or two that was almost fairly explicit, like they saw things that they shouldn't have seen. But, which which uh, again, may have been, was, again, as innocent as a kiss, or did they oh, yes. even really see them, uh, you know, Or was there some, even some kind of sexual abuse or, or you know... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, this is again, and, and they, this is the, where my... Yeah. Uh, the, the, in well, the Victorian era, they would use the same words for either case, you know. Of course, they, right. It, could, yeah, it right. would be, they saw something they shouldn't have seen, meaning, oh, they were holding hands to something terrible. I mean, that's just the way of downplaying it and using this incredibly vague language to describe anything that's very unhelpful and actually can lead to the problems that I think this film explores. Yeah, but I mean, in, in my own work and in, in social services and, and working with abused and traumatized youth, I mean, I do see kids who are like the the age of the characters in these films, and they are very sexually like experienced and provocative, and it's it's a it's a horrible, awful thing because 
their early life experience has kind of pushed them in these directions. Uh, but when I see this young boy, this 10 year old boy, you know, grabbing a grown woman and kissing her on the lips and, and really sort of take pulling her in and weaving a spell of sorts, uh, an erotic spell over this older woman. Uh, I, I, I have personal experience of working with children who operate that way. And it's, it's a very complex and kind of heartbreaking situation because you can't really undo what they've experienced. You just have to help them find a way that to, to recognize that what's happened to them has really victimized them, but they don't want to perpetuate that cycle. And so, yeah, so I'm seeing abused, traumatized children all over the place as I see as I see these both of these characters. And and so again, this is my own sort of life experience, kind of projecting itself into this film and seeing something being portrayed that is is quite disturbing. Um, and yet, you know, it, it, it's it's also very playful and provocative and, and tantalizing because there, is all the, there are all these other alternate interpretations that one can um, you know, can provide, and and even even the, the the ghostly hallucinations or the the figments of a, of a haunted imagination that take on a life of their own. I mean, that's another sort of aspect of of people falling into kind of magical thinking or, or supernaturalisms of various sorts and 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 sort of attributing their own inner psychic pain and turmoil into you know spirits and demons and, and things of that sort that are invading them from the outside and 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 inflicting chaos not only in their lives but in the lives of people around them uh flora's breakdown in the in the rainstorm in the folly where she goes from this dainty little dancer to this shrieking banshee is kind of like whoa that's a pretty intense behavioral meltdown that i'm i'm watching and and sort of diagnosing from my uh armchair you know thinking i could just leave work behind but (laughs) there it is right in front of me I appreciate your perspective on that because I think the film definitely allows for all of that. It's kind of one of these things of even if the ghosts are not real, these children have still probably been traumatized by all that's gone on and all that's going on. I I don't think Miss Giddens is doing them any favors with the way that she's dealing with things. And it's kind of an interesting thing where the woman who's supposed to be in control and protecting the children almost becomes the new terror of the house. And I she's over her head. I mm-hmm. mean, she she took on this sort of pseudo maternal task and she's going to take care of these children. But she really had no idea what she got herself into. And again, I don't want to just keep going on about my professional life. But I also work with a lot of adults who want to come in and help these poor victimized children. It's like, well, first, you must understand what you're what you're going to experience when you work with these kids. And I don't I don't say that to trivialize it. It's just. It's very challenging when you get into the world of, of uh, youth trauma and healing and, and treatment and recovery. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I'll try to I'll try not to chase that that vein any further. Well, I mean, Miss Gunn's perspective coming in seems to be, and I think is exemplified through her actions, that as long as the children are generally happy and cheerful, she'll know what to do with them. She, you know, she's very good at kind of in, inventing games or playing along with something, some thread they're following. But as soon as she has to find some form of discipline or just deal with the uh, uncontrollable emotions that kids inevitably run into, you know, something as routine as that. She kind of gets at her wits end fairly quickly. You know, she never really finds a way to uh, approach or scold Miles for the fact that he got kicked out of school only to tell him that it's serious and not really, you know, convey to him the depth of what's happened. And uh, when they start kind of getting into the small little tiffs in front of her, like in the classroom they have, she never really finds a way to deal with them there either. So she's kind of unprepared for the day-to-day rigors even of dealing with children, never mind any uh, long-term trauma that she might have to navigate as well. Let alone any of these ghosts. Sure. I, mean. <laughs> I know we keep ignoring the ghosts, but they're, 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 they're a pretty significant factor. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely allow for this film to to be just a ghost story where Miss Giddens is trying to just protect these children from some forces beyond the grave and from beyond the pale too. I mean, these are these are bad these are bad people in Miss Giddens' rendition of them. Or I mean, I'm 
tipping my hand there in the <laughs> as the film mm-hmm. is presenting them to be well yeah yeah quint is this completely malevolent mm-hmm. you know cackling presence and and miss jessel is just like this shroud <laughs> that i love the first the, scene in, of her in, yeah lurking in the rushes there in the weeds and and just stands there and and it's like uh you know that the, the the girl has got her stare locked in and, and uh, Miss Giddens is trying to sort of confront her and shoo this malevolent ghostly spirit away and she just stands there implacably. It's like, it's it's very subtly rendered but but very, very effective. I mean, they, they kind of definitely burns its image into your brain and, and, you know, gives a nice little chill along the way. Yeah, we watched it with my sister a few years ago. When we were finished with it, I kind of asked her what she thought about it and going through it. And I finally did ask her, you know, eventually, do you, do you think the ghosts were real? And it had, it had never crossed her mind that they weren't, that this wasn't just a fairly straightforward ghost story. And and yet she was she still really enjoyed it. And I think it's very enjoyable on that level. I, I get most of my kicks from it with the atmosphere that it has. And, but then when I, when you finally delve under and have some of the other possibilities that we've discussed tonight. But as a, as a ghost story, I still think it, it's, it's well done. It might not be fully satisfying, but I, I do like it still. Yeah, I think that's kind of where some of my reservations start to kick in. Uh, I, I haven't read the novella, as I said, but I did, before seeing the film, just incidentally see a stage adaptation of the novella, uh, which was essentially just a two-person show. It was a woman, of course, playing the Miss Giddon role, and then a man who kind of alternately came in as uh, the uncle or a spirit presence or whatever else he needed to be. Uh, and it was completely terrifying. It, like, wrecked me. It was great. Um so, but then there's always been an element of the film uh, and it kind of fits into the series of films that 20th Century Fox was making during its time, like Three Faces of Eve or Hush Us, Sweet Charlotte or Rapture. And there's some, just something a little polite and kind of mounted about it. And it's not, it doesn't have that kind of psychological intensity and kind of keeps at least me at somewhat of a distance of Miss Giddens' perspective. You know, I, I mean, it's, I know it's 1961 and some of the, uh, effects of the European new wave cinema yet to come to America. But if you think just a couple years later of something like repulsion, um, it's just the, the intensity is not quite as much there for me. I don't know. There's something a little, maybe it's because of its literary roots. Maybe it's trying to please that crowd a little too much for me, but I don't know. I feel like I always feel at every turn that could go a little bit further with the emotional intensity. I see what you're talking about. I do think it's a fairly faithful adaptation of the novella. It does read almost like a polite story. In fact, the novella has an additional framing device, which is it's a story some men are telling each other on like Christmas Eve, you know, ghost story. And he's saying, you know, I'm gonna, I'll turn the screw. I'll make this a little bit more terrifying. It kind of lulls you into this proper story again. And then is mostly suggestive about the other elements that could be there. It's very, in fact, the movie is much more explicit about some of the psychosexual aspects than the book is, I think. Interesting. That's interesting here. I always figured because the title is so uh, intense and even it was kind of softened there in the film adaptation that Turn of the Screw is such a great title for a ghost story. So I always figured that it must be as intense as, like I said, the stage play I saw. But it's interesting to hear it's more on the plate end. It does have all of that linguistic ambiguity. And that's something James was very interested in. I mean, a lot of his stories explore what we expect and what we get. So I, I think that I think that they did a really good job of pleasing people who would have come to this by way of the novella in presenting something that works still as that nice ghost story and yet alludes to the other possibilities in a way that's like, oh, it's there. It's, it, you know, we feel smart when we when we talk about it. But <laughs> but I see what you're saying, too. I, and I'd never really thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah, I think putting it in the context of later 60s where you could just, you know, horror, uh, psychological horror in particular, where you could really go a little bit further over the edge or really get into, you know, portraying some of that sort of more twisted, aspects you know this this would probably does you know will come across as a little bit tame but i i think i like it because deborah carr is such a you know elegant uh actress and and these the settings also just have this elegance to them so uh, you know to me that's it, it's it's going to be a little bit 
muted, you know, but it's, 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 it's a canvas that I can project all kinds of <laughs> nasty twisted stuff onto. I, I, but I, I, I do just, I love the sumptuous visual beauty. I, I love Deborah Carr's, um, her, her, her kind of ability to, oh, what's the word I'm trying to think here, but just, she kind of meters out, you know, this, this, uh, kind of building tension and, and, uh, it modulates i guess that's the word i'm looking for you know she she starts off with a you know kind of a cheerful optimistic uh openness to whatever this new experience is going to bring but then it, you know you just sort of see the the pressure and the, and the weight of this burden that she's carrying just kind of lays in and yeah you know having having sort of seen her appear in a number of other criterion films as well as a number of other pretty important movies uh this is this is a very interesting move for her at this stage of her career and uh you know and because there is this this kind of significant age gap between her and her young would-be lover um and 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 the way the film ends too i again that that uh that framing of of the clasped hands and the and the dark the music it's just there's just all these really beautiful textures to the film that uh even as they're kind of eerie and a little bit disturbing there's something that i just find very wonderful about the way it's all composed the, the editing as well the visuals the dissolves uh, all those transition scenes and these three and four layers of, of images kind of superimposed on top of each other uh that's that's what i've really enjoyed about the second and third watches as i've gone through this film a few times is just really appreciating all those very signature touches um yeah there's, there's a lot of stuff that i just really find delightful about this film have we have we have we said a, a single thing tonight, Scott? That makes you go, huh, yeah, you know, yeah. That that's that that makes me see it from a different perspective. Or sounds like you you know a lot of this is stuff you you've reconciled and dealt with. Duly appreciated and moving on. <laughs> no, not not entirely. I I think so, some of David's points about the idea of the kids being uh, more actively traumatized and perhaps even abused than I given the. Uh, that I really noticed in the film and that uh, definitely isn't something I'd considered before. I, I don't know if it's enough for me to rank the film much higher, but again, I've always liked it. I just, I just never understood why it was considered huge for many people, but I'm, I'm glad that people do like it. I'm always glad when people like movies. Yeah, it might as well, if we're going to sit down to spend some time with it, might as well like it. Uh, that's <laughs> that's a, a good way to put it. <laughs> there's just the weird bits you know the part where miles reaches out his hands on i will protect you and 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 uh, miss giddens is about to take his hand and then rather than take her hand he touches this weird little rabbit shaped jello mold and kind of giggles as it's jiggling around. It's, like, it's just what in the world is that you know but these these strange little touches Did you of find the, it unsettling the, oh it, quite quite <laughs> and and yeah just like it just kind of conjures up thoughts that i don't even want to admit to myself <laughs> the fawning over this little tortoise from the little rupert you know now it was rupert wasn't in the novel i think i heard in the commentary that these animals were kind of also innovations or or was the the girl's little tortoise have a place in henry james imagination as well i don't remember there being a tortoise but i haven't ever I've never made the comparison to see. I've never thought about it being absent and haven't looked okay. to, to double check. But I, I certainly don't remember all of the animals and all the all the beetles and yeah, yeah, yeah. The beetle crawling out of the statue's mouth, you know, and and uh, yeah, some of the some of the scenes uh, where she's walking along on the terraces, the patios of this beautiful estate, kind of remind me of uh, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, and so yeah, there's just there's just a lot, just, I don't know, just lots and lots of cool little moments. Uh, I, I think it's a film that rewards rewatching, and I think that's probably another reason why perhaps it's little cult of fans uh, they do appreciate it because. Uh, yeah, yeah, you you can you can focus on the acting one time and the atmospherics on the other, uh, the electronic uh, early electronic synthesized sounds and and the music. Uh, that's another little technical thing that's going on here. You can you can have early Truman Capote work here, some of that little lurid gothic atmosphere. So yeah, it's it's it packs a lot of entertainment value. 
and it's got that great little ditty the willow yeah, willay or sounds whatever sounds yeah, just yeah. like a it's, it's so fitting as a as an old lament but they actually did write it for the movie i'll, I'll i will start the episode out with that so listeners will have already right, heard so. the, yeah <laughs> Uh, I was just going to ask, was it on the commentary that they talked about the fact that there were supposed to be more insects in the film? Do I, do I recall that correctly? Well, what did you mean? Like they edited some of that stuff out or something? No, just like in the I, original I screenplay the or something, there's the it. idea of having more kind of insect imagery, like the beetle crawling out of the statue's mouth. There's supposed to be kind of more of that, um, which I thought would have been interesting. It would have kind of set it apart for the time. I mean, now I feel like bugs and ghosts are practically so synonymous that... It, I'm as scared of bugs as I am of ghosts, thanks to the movies. Uh, but it, it would have been an interesting touch at the time. It would have been very unusual to see that many insects unleashed on a, on film in 1961. Now, is is the bug and ghost connection, is that just decay? Um, what? I guess I, so. I've seen I don't it know. too, but I, I, I don't get it. Right? It's a very common kind of link. I guess it is kind of decay and kind of these uncontrollable forces. And frankly, if I was surrounded by a thousand bugs or a ghost, I'd probably pick the ghost. Yeah, <laughs> I think I would too, you know. But um, but yeah, I've always kind of wondered, I mean, are they just disturbed or are they coming out from the woodwork because the evil presence is calling them? Or I, I remember something like that, Scott, with the commentary or somewhere in there. I, I do remember hearing that, but I didn't listen to the commentary this time around uh, uh, so it's not fresh. Well, and 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 this and these statues are sort of they're a, sort of an idealization of of cherubs and angels and innocence and sort of manufactured beauty. But then you see from within it this you know insects. I mean, especially large insects. They they are just so weird. You know, I mean, there's this kind of revulsive uh, quality to them. Uh, you know extra legs and mandibles and shells and they're they're just strange and especially again in the in the context of this kind of uh, you know repressive physicality sexuality denying or or blocking it out or not acknowledging it culture of kind of high victorianism uh you know, we don't talk about those things. We don't let our minds linger on those types of things. And and yet the insect and the ghosts are kind of like those forces of nature that kind of break through our polite facade and force us to acknowledge some of the grimy, gritty, uh, you know, ugliness and, and uh, those forbidden emotions of life kind of bursting through to where you, you have to deal with them. And, and yet it's not polite to do that you know that's i i think that's that's what makes this film and and, and films of this sort uh, and and films made when those boundaries were just beginning to dissolve but couldn't be fully blown open like they are in so many films you know of, of more recent vintage where you've got to just pour on the shock and the horror and the outrage just to get a get a reaction after <laughs> we've seen so much already uh this this film kind of brings you back to where those tensions are are present, but we've already moved into sort of a post-Victorian mentality, but it's it hasn't completely blown open quite as much as it would by the end of that decade. All right. Well, I've said my piece and can save a little bit of my adulation for the closing thoughts. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to share, Scott? Um. No, I, I like the note the film ends on. It keeps the ambiguity, drills down the, the terror of the story, and uh, Miss Giddens' uh, role in perpetuating it. It's a, it's a very good ending a, a, that kind of calls back to the beginning in a very strong way. Yeah, and you know, actually, I hadn't put this down to talk about, but the book ends with Miss Giddens trying to hold Miles, and she's holding him when he dies. So there is this sense in the book that she could have strangled him unknowingly or, or maybe even slightly knowingly, whereas in the movie, it's, a, it's quite a different ending, but it does still manage to kind of maintain just that shock of this is, this is too much and, and keep some of that ambiguity. Part of me does kind of wish they would have gone there with the, with the movie. Where Deborah Carr is, is kind of like squeezing the kid or grass or pulling on him and, and maybe in some ways inadvertently injuring him to the point where he she causes his death. I mean, here it's kind of like he, Quint he appears, he collapses, just the psychological angst of it all or maybe some 
<laughs> heart condition, who knows what, but the pressure or the tension rather than any physical thing is what killed the kid, you know? And, and yeah, and I don't know, again, Deborah Carr has this kind of wild, bewildered expression on her face. And then uh, again, a full sensual kiss on the lips. I mean, that's like, wow, you know, where, where, where is she really at with all of this? It's yeah. And, and, Again, for her, it's a it's a pretty brave move. I mean, she had just come out, out of the King and I, and I mean, you know, she, of course, she was in the famous beach scene in From Here to Eternity. But there, she's with Burt Lancaster. You know, <laughs> this is a, a kid one fourth her age. <laughs> like, wow, okay, out on a limb there, are you, Deborah? Oh, yeah, they don't play this on uh, on Hollywood like nights to like think of the great scenes in Hollywood history, do they? <laughs> Not a Hollywood film, but still, you know, it just didn't have the same romances uh, from here to eternity. Yeah. I don't think this was a film that was real successful. I mean, I think it did okay. Or, what, what was the commercial prospects of this film? When it, I mean, as far as its original release, it, it wasn't like super successful from what I recall reading here. But My impression from the commentary is that they kind of towed the line between... Uh, pleasing horror fans and pleasing literary fans, and neither was really pleased as inevitably that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there were go. the Hammer horror films where there's a lot more, you know, blood and gore and kind of voluptuousness. Right. Uh, so it didn't really have enough of that. It was a little was too cheesy for the literary enough... crowd. Um, right, right. I... But it looks like it did decent business but... if Wikipedia is to be believed. Yeah, yeah, I'm on there too, and it says it wasn't a box office success at the time, but. It does look like at least it made its budget back, uh, just in the U.S. and Canada alone, in fact. Yeah, and it's, it's, I guess it, maybe it's because it was this kind of peculiar hybrid. Uh, maybe there's a certain touch of nostalgia that, that you know, draws its audience back now. And and uh, it is, it's, there's, you know, I don't know, there's a whole lot of movies quite like it, you know. Um I also, you know, maybe interested to hear a little bit more if any of you know anything about more about Jack Clayton. I didn't realize that he had uh, directed the Robert Redford version of The Great Gatsby. That's kind of an interesting tidbit there. He he seemed to have a pretty checkered career in terms of starting a lot of projects that end up either being taken away from him or canceled. So he didn't produce a real large body of work, but I'm pretty impressed by the craftsmanship and the dedication uh, to trying to capture a certain vision that that you get in this film. So, you know, yeah, I've only seen this, saw this and Blu-ray. his Gatsby, and uh, this is by far the stronger film. I mean, I, I love anything that's even a shadow right. of Gatsby, but that is a, a deep shadow of Gatsby. That's barely a shadow. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. I don't like the Great Gatsby film version at all. But he did a lot of these are adaptations. The Pumpkin Eater that he did after The Innocents is a Penelope Mortimer film. The, than The Great Gatsby. And and The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn is a very good uh, book. I've, I've never read the, the, the film or read the, um, or seen the film. And same with Memento Mori. That's a Muriel Spark book. So he, he is adapting British strange books about repressed women. The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn is about a woman who moves into an apartment complex. There's weird people throughout it. Memento Mori is a, is kind of a sinister spoof with uh, older people getting their reminder of death. Death Death's calling them. And The Pumpkin Eater is, is probably another psychosexual uh, adaptation of a book about a, a woman's pregnancy. Hmm. Oh, Pumpkin Eater. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's done... A lot of, of adaptations of books that I like, but I, I need to see more of them. Yeah, I did also want to note, I forgot to mention with the subject of Deborah Carr, that this was kind of a, a theme and an emotional intensity that she kind of came about throughout her career. I mean, you think back to Black Narcissus, where she's so incredible as a oh, yeah, somewhat sure, similar sure. type of character. Um, but then she went on a real streak, I think, after maybe The King and I kind of, and the affair to remember gave her maybe a little more clout. Uh, see her in Bonjour Tristesse or Separate Tables. Or uh, mm -hmm. what else did I note here? Well, The Grass is Greener is not great, but it's a solid movie. Uh, but those two films are, are really interesting films. And I think she was really maybe recognizing that her uh, time in the spotlight was about to end and kind of taking advantage of it. After this, you know, she didn't do a film for three years and then kind of popped in mostly supporting roles from here on out. Uh, so this was in some ways kind of her, her last hurrah as a leading lady. Yeah, yeah, after a very stellar 
uh, late 40s and early 50s, or and throughout the 50s. Yeah, for with sure. With an affair to remember as well. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I love love that yeah. one. So, yeah. Uh, any anything else? Uh, no. David? No, I think it's a it's a nice package. I think it's pretty pretty good movie to watch this time of year. A little October uh, spooky film, and probably one I'll watch in future Octobers. You know, uh, so yeah, I, it's a nice addition to the collection. I'm not sure we'll ever see any other Jack Clayton movies here, but. Uh, yeah, Deborah Carr is pretty well represented, and and uh, this feels like it was a pretty pretty nice find and and a smart move for Criterion to put it out there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Scott, final final words. Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have done a better job of representing the film than I. Like I said, it's a, a very solid film, and uh, when I was I was glad I would revisit it because I did like it more the second time and saw more in it than I did the first time. So I was glad to have the chance to rewatch it and discuss it with you guys. Yep, and like I say, I, I've now watched it several times just because I love the atmosphere. I love delving into the world, and every time a character does something, now I can't help but but question it and and try to see it from a perspective that isn't presented in the film. You know, the kids up on the banister laughing is so threatening until you realize your kids go up on the banister and laugh quite often and it's not that big of a deal you know they're just happy it's bedtime and they're you know it's fine <laughs> so i like i like going through it and kind of picking apart those details but I, I i do come back to it mostly for the atmosphere the 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 great lament at the beginning which you know why not i think i should play it on the way out as well it's just it's that that strong of a little of a little piece it's been adapted many times so if i find a suitable adaptation that's how we'll end it but listeners thanks so much for for joining us uh, on this uh, october evening or whenever you get a chance to listen to this and we will be back shortly with more from the criterion collection we lay my love and i